Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have spoken in your holy word. And, it, and because it is living and active, it continues to speak to us today. So speak now to us through the preaching of your word and give us open ears and understanding hearts to receive your word. Make our minds attentive and make us ready to respond with faith and obedience. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3, page 793 in the Pew Bibles. So Zechariah chapter 3. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. When I moved out of my parents' house into my college dorm room for my freshman year of college, I had to do my own laundry for myself for the first time. It wasn't pretty. I only did laundry for about once every three weeks, and I quickly learned that if you stuff the machine as full as you can with mud and sweat-soaked gym clothes and lots of socks, it doesn't actually get things clean. Once I was married, my wife took over most of the laundry duties. I still do a lot of folding. And at first, laundry was once laundry once a week was enough to keep up. Oh, the one and now two little ones. It's amazing how much laundry is created. And so it's almost a daily task. And yet we must wash our clothing because no one wants to go out in public with 
foul odors or visible stains. You don't want to go out in public. How much less do you want to stand before the one true living God? This morning, as we look at Zechariah's fourth vision, this imagery of dirty and clean clothing becomes a powerful depiction of our standing before God. And in particular, for God's wonderful act of justification, taking us from dead in our sins and trespasses to clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is even more significant in the case of Joshua, because he is the high priest. And he must first be clean himself if he is to make offerings for the rest of the people. The vision of the reclothing of Joshua is swiftly followed by another prophecy. A prophecy pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as we will see, the two are intimately connected. For our justification requires the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we'll look at our passage in two parts this morning. First, the trial of Joshua in the heavenly courtroom. And second, the prophecy of the shoot, the coming Messiah. So let's begin with part one, the trial of Joshua. In his fourth vision, Zechariah finds himself in the heavenly courtroom. In verse one, we see that Joshua is standing on trial. And the angel of the Lord is the judge, Satan then is the prosecuting, prosecuting attorney standing to accuse Joshua. So let's take a closer look at each character. You'll recall that we saw the angel of the Lord in Zechariah's first vision. He was the rider on the red horse, and we identified him there as the pre-incarnate Son of God. Just as before, here too, we have a close identification between the angel of the Lord And the Lord himself. As he is called the angel here in verse 1. But then in verse 2. It simply says. The Lord speaks. It's appropriate here. That he serves in the role of the divine judge. As God the father has delegated to his son. The role of serving as the judge. On the final day of judgment. Which is to come. And second we have Joshua. The high priest. As the high priest, he has a key role in offering sacrifices on behalf of the sins, on behalf of the people for their sins, so that they might be cleansed. But in verse 3, we learn that he is clothed in filthy garments. Now, the ESV translation, filthy, hardly captures the extent of the problem here. For the Hebrew word translated filthy, it refers to human excrement. So it would be more accurately translated excrement-stained or excrement-soaked garments. Of course, this is a vision. It's not literal, but it is representing spiritual realities. And what these garments represent is the depths of Joshua's sin. And not only his sin, but because Joshua is the high priest, he represents all the people to God. And so this is what all Israel looks like in the sight of the Lord, like a man wearing excrement-stained clothing. And naturally, this is a stench in the nostrils of our holy, holy, holy God. As I already mentioned, this also presents a problem for Joshua's role as a high priest. 
If his priestly robes are covered in stains, he cannot present a pure offering to God to make atonement for sins. There are no details on what specific sins Joshua or the people have committed, but we know in general that they had not been faithful in building God's temple during the 20 years they had been back in the land. We also know that they had been beaten down. They had been discouraged by the Persians and also by their neighbors. And that in general, this had not caused them to return to the Lord, but rather to stray from them. That's why the book of Zechariah began with a general call to repent, to return to the Lord. We also know that there are two ways, at least two ways, to sin against the Lord. Obviously, we sin when we transgress the law of the Lord, when we break the law. But even our supposed good deeds fall short of the Lord's standard. And we are tempted to trust in our good deeds, to take pride in ourselves. Isaiah uses similar clothing imagery to describe this. He writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, 6. So whether we transgress the law of the Lord or we trust in our own good works, we are just like Joshua here in this vision, dressed in an excrement-stained garment. The problem of our sin runs deep. Then we have the third character in this courtroom drama, Satan. While we often take Satan as a proper, a, a given name, it's actually a, tit- a title. It means the accuser. And the same Hebrew word is actually used as a verb here to describe what the Satan is up to. Namely, he has come here to accuse Joshua. And in this, we see some similarities to the heavenly courtroom scenes in the first two chapters of the book of Job. Well, it's not clear at this point in the history of Revelation that the accuser is to be identified with the serpent from the Garden of Eden or with the devil himself. This is later confirmed in Revelation 12.9, that the serpent, Satan, and the devil are one and the same. Now, here we see Satan's clear purpose is to oppose the restoration of Joshua which would mean the restoration of temple worship with its purifying sacrifices. So Satan stands ready to fling his accusations against Joshua. And though Satan is a liar and deceiver, the very father of lies, he wouldn't need to lie on this occasion, for Joshua's own clothing testifies against him. But before Satan can even open his mouth, the angel of the Lord rules him out of order. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now here the angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf of the Lord. His first words are both a commanding rebuke of Satan but also a prayer to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Then he follows this up, a second rebuke. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Satan is opposing not only the restoration of Joshua, but also the temple and the priesthood. But the Lord has already made clear twice in these visions that he has again chosen Jerusalem as his dwelling place. And he has assured his people that the temple will be rebuilt 
and the city not only restored, but made mighty. Though Jerusalem was humbled for a season, the time of its restoration had come. Satan had stood to oppose this. It was time for him to sit down and be silent. Third, the angel of the Lord says, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This imagery depicts Joshua as a smoldering stick, saved out of the fire of God's anger, which had been poured out on his people in the exile. Perhaps he had been singed by God's judgment, but now God had plucked him out. And by God's grace, it was time for his restoration. And now that restoration comes in verses 4 and 5. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here we see a proclamation of the good news from the Lord. First, the command is given to remove those excrement-laden garments. But this is merely symbolic for what is truly significant. I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you with pure vestments. In taking away Joshua's iniquity, the Lord is granting him forgiveness for all his sins. Then in clothing him anew, God is granting him his own righteousness. His new garments are best translated here as festival garments. Yes, they are pure and clean, but they are also meant for rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Then in verse 5, Zechariah himself jumps in with the suggestion to put a clean turban on Joshua's head. Uh, A turban was part of the high priest's ceremonial garb, and while it's not clear why Zechariah needed to mention it, perhaps Joshua wasn't wearing anything on his head before. And so Joshua is clothed, turban and all. And while it's not mentioned exactly who does the clothing, there must have been some angel attendants who carried out all these commands to unclothe and then reclothe Joshua. And we are told that the angel of the Lord was standing by, watching and approving as his orders were carried out. The end result is that Joshua has been transformed. He has gone from being a beggar dressed in excrement-soaked rags to now wearing the Lord's finest festival garb. He is attired for office. And in a moment, he will receive a charge from the angel of the Lord to take up again his priestly duties. Now let's consider what this means for you and for me today. Zechariah's vision of Joshua presents to us a striking picture of what we read about earlier in Romans chapter 3, the doctrine of justification. As we learn in Romans 3, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That is, we are all sin-stained just like Joshua. And yet, as Paul goes on to write, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here we see that justification is a gift from God, just as in the case of Joshua. It's not something we deserve, something simply given to us by God. It's not given for anything that we have done, not because we deserve it, 
but simply because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Because we trust in what he has accomplished in his death on the cross and in his resurrection three days later. For God to justify you means for him to literally declare you to be righteous. And this is wonderfully illustrated in the reclothing of Joshua. For it is so much more than simply forgiving your sins, taking away the filthy garments. For if God were to merely forgive your sins, you would be left naked, left to start from scratch, and then it would be up to you to build up your own righteousness in your own strength. And that is not what he does, as we see here. No, he clothes you in pure festival robes. In fact, he clothes you with the very righteousness of Christ. This is what Paul speaks of in Philippians 3.9. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what it means to be justified in Christ. To not only have your sins taken away, but to also have Christ's righteousness given to you. So that when God looks upon you, he sees you clothed in pure white from head to toe. And all he can do as he looks upon you is smile and say, this one is righteous and pleasing in my sight. That is what it means to be justified by faith in Christ. Have you put your faith in him? Our passage does not end with the clothing of Joshua, but it continues with his reinstatement as high priest. Continuing in verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule in my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The Lord calls Joshua to walk in his ways, which refers to keeping the Lord's covenant, being obedient to all of God's law. Second, he says, if you keep my charge, that is his charge to serve as the high priest, then three privileges will result if, the Lord, if Joshua is faithful. Now, these are privileges, but they also come with their corresponding responsibilities. First, he will rule in the Lord's house, that is, the temple. Of course, this is both a position of honor that the high priest holds, but it is also a position of great responsibility. Second, he will have charge of the Lord's courts. This includes the duty to guard the holiness of the sanctuary and its surrounding courtyards. But then third, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Here, the Lord is giving Joshua a special access to the heavenly courtroom, to the divine presence. For while there are several standing there, the most important one there is the angel of the Lord, the Son of God. It's not exactly clear how this access would be granted. Perhaps it's simply a restoration of the high priest's access to the Lord through entering the Holy of Holies, which he would do once a year on the Day of Atonement. Or perhaps it's something more, a special access to the Lord through prayer so that he might intercede on behalf of God's people. Either way, the Lord is giving the restored Joshua an incredible gift here. 
It's not just for him. It's so that he might seek the Lord on behalf of God's people. Here in verses 6 and 7, we see that the reclothed and restored Joshua is now called to walk in grateful obedience. There's nothing he could have ever done to cleanse himself or to earn his restoration, but now that the Lord has restored him, out of gratitude for his salvation, he is now called to serve the Lord. And is it not the same for us? Once you have been justified, you are called to walk in obedience out of gratitude for your salvation. We see this laid out clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So salvation by grace alone, not by works, that comes first, then good works flowing out of gratitude follows after our salvation. Now this brings us then to part two of our sermon this morning. After the restoration of Joshua, the angel of the Lord continues to speak, but now he changes the subject. Here we have a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And as it is the Son of God speaking, notice he's actually speaking of his own coming. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Here the Lord addresses both Joshua and also his friends. I believe he's speaking of the fellow priests here. He tells them that these are men of a sign, a sign of what is to come. In other words, the restoration of the temple and the priesthood is a sign that there is a greater restoration which is coming. One who will be a greater high priest. One who will even embody the temple in himself. This one is called the branch, or at least that's the traditional English translation of the Hebrew term. But I think a better translation is the shoot or the sprout. For the image is not simply a new branch coming off of an established branch, but rather a new shoot sprouting forth from a stump of a tree that had been cut down. For that is the state of the line of David. It was once a mighty tree, but now all that is left is the stump. This had been prophesied earlier in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Zechariah and Joshua were probably also familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch or shoot, then he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And there's also another prophecy of the coming shoot in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 18. We'll see another later in Zechariah 6, 12. I don't want to overwhelm you with lengthy citations. 
The point is the Lord is making it very clear that he will revive the house of David. That a new king is coming. And the restoration of Joshua and the priesthood is a sign of this coming king. Next, he he helps Joshua to understand what this shoot will accomplish. Verse 9. For behold, on this stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So here, the Lord sets before Joshua a stone which is described as having seven eyes. There's a bit of difficulty in interpreting this verse. There are many interpretations proposed, but most likely these seven eyes are just seven facets of the stone. If you think of a cube, it has six sides, like a six-sided die that you roll. But this stone has seven sides. That's the number of completion. The high priest's garments traditionally had several items that bore inscriptions. And this one may refer to the golden plate attached to the priest's turban, inscribed with the the words, holy to the Lord. Or it's also possible that the inscription is these final words of the verse. For the Lord declares here, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now for Joshua and Zechariah, this would make them think of the day of atonement. But we realize that the Lord has a much greater day of atonement in mind here. That day to which the day of atonement was pointing forwards all along. A single day in which the shoot will remove all the iniquity of all those who trust in him. It is the day on which Jesus Christ, the shoot sprouting forth from David, goes to the cross to remove the iniquity of all his people. And not only that, but also to grant us his own righteousness. Professor Ian Duguid has the insight that everything that Joshua received in his reclothing was enabled by Jesus making the opposite move in his crucifixion. Here I'll quote Professor Duguid at length. Joshua received a clean turban on his head. Jesus was crowned with thorns which were pressed down onto his forehead until the blood ran down his face. Joshua was clothed in festival garments. Jesus had the clothing stripped from his back and divided among those who crucified him. Joshua was judged and declared clean on the basis of God's choice of him for salvation, found not guilty of defilement that really was his. Jesus was judged by sinners, found guilty on trumped-up charges, and handed over to be scourged and crucified. Yet this too was God's choice. Joshua's sin was taken away. He was declared innocent, able to stand before God as high priest for his people, bearing their name before God. Jesus, who committed no sin, was made sin by God and was separated from God the Father by that burden to the point that he cried out in agony in the darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? End quote. And Jesus did all this not only for Joshua, but for you as well, if you are trusting in him. Come now to the final verse, verse 10. 
In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now here's the second occurrence in Zechariah of that important phrase, in that day. Last week we saw that in that day God would come to dwell in the midst of his people in glory. The Gentiles would be welcomed in and so the people would sing and rejoice. And we saw in that day it was referring to the coming of Christ. And here we see another response to this glorious day, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it's a response of hospitality. Of course, for each person to have their own vine and their own fig tree, it's a picture of paradise. But it's even better when this is shared and enjoyed with one's neighbors. But I don't believe that this is a picture of worldly paradise, but rather of our heavenly inheritance. Just as in the Old Testament, the people of God were given an inheritance in the promised land. And in the best of times, during the reign of King Solomon, it was said that each family had its own vine and fig tree. Now, so now in the New Testament, we are given an inheritance above, in the new Jerusalem, in the paradise of God. And so, to invite our neighbors into this, this is an Old Testament foreshadowing of the Great Commission. And what an appropriate conclusion this is to this glorious chapter of Zechariah. For we have seen the gospel so clearly depicted that through faith in Christ, the filthy rags of our sin are stripped away and we are clothed in the festival robes of Christ's righteousness. And then in joyful gratitude for our salvation, we respond in obedience and service to Christ. But not only that, in light of our heavenly inheritance, we want to share this good news with others. We want to invite them to come under our vine and fig tree, that they might find shelter in Christ, to know the joy that is found only through trusting in Him. This chapter is all about the good news, that we not only rejoice in, but that we gladly share with others, that Jesus Christ has removed our iniquity and clothed us with the robes of His righteousness. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we truly see ourselves through the lens of your word, our sinful hearts, our sin-stained hands, we realize that we are clothed in sin-stained rags and we would despair if it were not for the gospel. Your gospel, the good news, it is what makes our hearts to rejoice. That you strip away our sin-stained clothing and give us the robes of Christ's righteousness. Help us to respond to this rightly. With hearts overflowing with gratitude. And then to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us to do. Help us to serve you with all our hearts. So that you might be glorified in our lives. For we pray in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.